Hey everybody, it's Mark with Low Marks Podcast coming to you today with a little bit more knowledge about a different subject, probably more interesting than paper, a little bit less one ply and a little more boom explosion. So you got that coming to you today. Today we're going to be talking about tanks, their origin, their evolution starting as an object of ridicule and eventually becoming the the war weapon that we know today the one that we know and love but you're you're looking around the early 1900s about the, the time of the great war world war one as it's known so you're looking at a, a lot of improvements over fighting during the uh, civil war going into the world war one you've got like I said, improvements, advancements in warfare that have been impossible up until that time. So new technology had to be created for the betterment of weapons such as artillery, grenades, rifles. You Back 1860s, you had to reload your muskets. You had lines of people lining up to shoot and get shot and just stand there and take it. But now you've got trenches and you've got grenades and rifles and repeating fire. Just much more casualty inflicting mechanisms. You've got the offensive weapons. You also have defensive implements. You've got barbed wire and a no man's land between the lines of trenches in the Western Front, the Western Theater of World War One. Vehicles came around. You had more than horse and buggy. You started to have Henry Ford coming along, his Model T. Improvements on vehicles and motorized combustion engines. You also had in the air, you had experimental airplanes used in limited bombing exercises. You didn't have the radar, the lock and fire, dropping heat-seeking missiles. You just had guys up above the war, above the battlefield, just throwing down anything, rocks, maybe, explosive, grenades, whatever, and just hoping they hit their target. You had a lot of different things going on, like improvements, if you considered improvements relatively speaking you've got a lot of stuff going on that you didn't have previously there was a lot of stalemates both sides had the same technology it was tit for tat everybody was just in the same boat as as far as fighting i have guns you have guns i've got planes you've got planes whatever in order to get a leg up you had the british army and they're experimenting with the vehicle known under a code name as the water carrier using the utmost secrecy nobody was allowed to know about this because of course you want to get your leg up you don't want to tell everybody hey i'm working on this during the beginning of the tank's life many military leaders such as conventional general staff officers who believed in the sanctity of personal combat they had very little enthusiasm about using tanks in battle they said, hey, I've got men, give me flesh and blood, let me line them up and knock them down. I don't care about what weapons you have, I don't care about your armor-piercing treads on the wheels, your being able to destroy infrastructure, whatever. You had people who were very traditionalistic, probably maybe served in the Civil War too, because it's not that far behind. Thinking from an American perspective, of course you've got other struggles going along in, in Europe and the continent. First tank, which was a rhomboidal shaped caterpillar tracked machine, that went into action first on September 15th, 1916. Later tanks were main combat vehicles, armored guns, or self-propelled artillery. But for all intents and purposes for this podcast, all references to these vehicles, whether early, later, Abrams, or just a motorized 
covered vehicle, whatever. It all falls under the term tank. The timing of the first production of the tanks could not have been worse. With battling from World War I raging all over Europe, the manpower, supplies, and planning that normally would have gone on into planning the next revolutionary war machine, all those resources were severely limited in favor of more established means of warfare. As a result, tanks weren't able to contribute as much on the battlefield as some commanders who supported them would have liked. But in the tank's defense, many factors, including faulty parts and design, refusal to incorporate the tanks with other components of the army, and a general unawareness of how to handle the vehicles really limited the decisiveness of tanks in the first few years of their existence. Creation of the tanks did not happen overnight by any means. It was real gradual in which all the primary components finally came together during wartime in the early 20th century. The idea of a swiftly moving means of transportation on the battlefield, however, had existed for centuries. You go way back to the Assyrians, the Syrians, the Egyptians, biblical times, we're talking four, 6,000 years ago. The earliest ancestor of the tank, obviously the war chariot. The warrior that rode in the chariot was armed with a bow and arrow, and a javelin for long-range attacks, and a sword and shield for close-quarter combat. Chariots allowed for armies to be more mobile in their military excursions, but one of their main weaknesses was the absence of protection for the horse and the driver. Finding a compromise between speed and protection was a problem that faced armies that used chariots, just as it faced armies during World War I when dealing with the tanks. Chariots eventually fell by the wayside, but the use of horse and manpower remained a constant in the necessity to be mobile on the battlefield. Fast forward a couple thousand years to the Middle Ages, 15, 1600s, probably even earlier, I don't know, the Middle Ages. During the Middle Ages, mounted knights in armor emerged. The sheer weight and cumbersome nature of their armor limited their mobility, but when placed on horseback, the knight became a force to be reckoned with. The problem with knights came from their inability to attack from distances as chariot archers of the past had been able to. In order to counter this problem, you got knights using heavier armor, but it further limited their movement. But, on the good side, the thickened armor improved their chances of surviving an assault from close ranges. In the 19th century, steam power had developed enough so people began to combine steam engines with bicycles to create primitive battle cars. From there, armies in Paris began to place light steel armor plating on the sides of the cars to defend against light gunfire because sheer speed and elusiveness could not protect the vehicles in the same way that the armor was able to. Even before the trench barrier, commonly found in Europe around World War I, wheeled motor vehicles had been fitted with machine guns and sent by the Belgians, the British, and French to harry the German cavalry. Before the breakout of the Great War, armored cars had proven their worth in fighting action in both the Balkans and Italy, where they ran rings around slow-moving German horse patrols, at no great cost to themselves. Generals understood the usefulness of these armored cars and being able to zip about the battlefield, delivering supplies and maneuvering faster than pedestrian feeds. They began writing letters to influential individuals who could potentially begin researching production of vehicles that more closely resembled the modern tank that, that exists today than anything that had come for it. One such person to write a letter was Lieutenant Colonel Maurice Hankey. In his letter, Hankey asked if modern science can do no more in solving the problems found on the battlefield, and he suggested that, quote, a number of heavy rollers, themselves bulletproof, propelled from behind by motor engines, geared very low, the driving wheel fitted with the Caterpillar driving gear to grip to the ground, 
The driver's seat armored and with the Maxim gun fitted, the object of this device would be to roll down barbed wire by sheer weight to give some cover to men creeping up from behind and support the advance with machine gun fire. Dude sounds like he was on it as far as what he wanted, what he envisioned, and what we actually got. I mean, it's it's basically he called it. Called a shot, and here it comes. Another letter, a different letter, written by Lieutenant T. Hetherington, suggested the creation of a, quote, land battleship. This land battleship carried on three giant 40-foot wheels armed with three turrets and was propelled by an 800-horsepower submarine diesel set. Regardless of the perceived practicality of the vehicle, there was a growing desire for some to fill the void on the battlefield. These letters eventually led military leaders during the World War I, such as Winston Churchill, to call for the development of a trench-crossing machine that could deal with problematic areas of the time, such as those stated in Hinckley's letter like barbed wire and a general lack of cover. Field Marshal Herbert Kitchener was less headstrong than Churchill to test out some of the tanks and also quipped that, quote, without such a test, we may be wasting material and men uselessly. The contrast between how Churchill and Kitchener felt regarding the tanks is a fair and accurate representation for most of Europe in the way that they were clearly divided in favor and opposition of trying out tanks in the war. Once given approval, manpower and funds, to begin a production, each nation that decided to experiment with the tanks did so in generally the same way. You want something big, you want something that can't be destroyed, you want something that gives you cover and offensive capabilities. You you want a tank, basically. I mean, they're. I mean, you're working towards a goal, and the goal is the tank. You would you would imagine that they all come up in pretty similar ways. All the components that needed to create a machine like a tank had been in existence for many years. All that was needed was for someone to graft them together in a functioning vehicle. Basic tank components included the footed wheel, which was created in 1899. You had the steam-powered engine, armor plating, and mounted weapons. One of the main problems to begin with is that there was no fixed specification for the first tank, and at that time, no one knew exactly what the war office wanted. Foster & Co. Lincoln were the first manufacturers that received the contract to build the machines. Among the first group of prototypes included the, quote, number one Lincoln machine, which was known as the Triton machine. The Triton machine. Pronunciations are hard. This prototype, it began in September 1915, and there was also a machine called Little Willie, which began trials in December of the same year, 1915. These machines were also variously called Mother, Big Willie, and the Centipede while they were in their early stages of development. Due to the success of initial testings of these machines, a larger order of 100 machines was placed by the war office, thus leading the tank to enter its first stage of mass production. Most often tanks classified as male or female in relation to their armament featured six pound 40 caliber guns and four machine guns or no high caliber guns with just six machine guns. Early experiments at attempting to develop armor capable of holding up against artillery fire and high explosives were carried out as well. Eventually, bulletproof nickel steel plates of 12, 10, and 8 millimeter thickness and bomb-proof 6 millimeter high tensile steel plate were tested. They were tested, developed, and fitted to tanks. Rationing in the aluminum supply caused tank engines to lag behind other components that were being created at the time. Instead of aluminum, manufacturers were forced to use less reliable materials when building the engines, thus resulting in many of the problems on the battlefield coming from the tank's engines. Tanks faced an uphill battle even before they took any sort of physical form. The domino effect of problems began right from the start. 
After overcoming each challenge, anyone involved in the tanks at all had to deal with something that stemmed off of the issue that was apparently fixed, if only momentarily. A seemingly endless cause and effect of obstacles made some people feel that tanks were destined to fail. Many proponents against the inclusion of tanks in the military arsenal voiced numerous arguments against tanks. Soldiers who had attained higher ranks in armies during the Great War had done so during the 19th century in wars such as the Spanish-American War and the Second Boer War. Combat during these conflicts was restricted to relatively close quarters due to the range of the weapons that each side had. World War I leaders had experienced close-range fighting such as this. They intended to fight in the same manner of their current war as well. The potential changes that the tanks offered in regards to weapon range and battle tactics caused the commanders to be wary of them. Even the German general staff saw no use for tanks at first. They said that they were of no importance for military purposes, and the fact that there was little to spare for unlikely and expensive novelties also factored into German disapproval. Regardless of what the naysayers shouted in opposition of tanks, production began anyways. Another popular argument was that the material needed to just start producing hundreds of tanks would be immense. Rail transport, mechanical transport, airplane production, more specifically engines, track links, and guns required a large portion of steel resources that were available at the time. Anti-tank sentiment focused on the fact that they would cause a drain on the already limited steel resources. Few people wanted to gamble with allocating a large amount of steel to a project that may have turned out to be nothing more than a waste of material. They instead wanted to keep the resources to use on materials and vehicles that had already been proven as being effective. If they had failed to obtain a share in the steel budget, tanks, assuming they would still be manufactured at all, surely would have become a more permanent peripheral weapon. Even though the pro-tank side got their resources, what steel the tank factories did receive was of lesser quality than what other projects were given. The next obstacle tanks faced in their rise to eventual prominence was that of numbers, or more accurately, lack thereof. Factories in Britain and France simply didn't have the means to produce tanks around the time of their initial introduction to the battlefield. Lacking in numbers caused commanders to be limited in how they used tanks during the first year or so on the front lines. Another problem that turned out to be a catch-22 went along with the small production numbers. Engines and designers were constantly improving individual components that went into making the tanks as a whole. This led to some countries using up to three or even four different tank models at once. The catch-22 was that the army didn't know which machine they wanted to commit to. The model they decided to mass-produce was very likely to become outdated and no doubt inferior to the next model to come off the drawing boards of the research and development personnel. Failure to commit to a particular model at all would have jeopardized the chances of having a large-scale tank program in the future. Another problem stemming from multiple tank models in circulation at the time was the inability to create an efficient spares program that kept the front lines supplied with enough parts when tanks broke down under the strenuous conditions they faced. According to one calculation made in 1917, Mark IV tanks traveling an average of 3 miles per day for 14 days needed 20 tons of spare parts. For a month, it required 50 tons. This went to show how often tanks could and would malfunction and break down, which meant that factories basically had to guess at how many of what part for which model of which tank they were going to produce. This resulted in some tank battlefronts having too many of the wrong parts and too few of the ones that they actually needed. Because the commanders did not know what types of orders they needed to place, the situation between the factories and the front line spiraled downward into an undesirable situation. 
Many times, tank operators have tried to resort to salvaging parts that they needed from other tanks that had fallen in battle. Unfortunately, there was a great shortage of technical personnel from which to form salvage companies, thus making salvaging parts a moot point. You didn't have the people to salvage, so you couldn't salvage. Some circles even discussed the possible suspension of tank production in favor of making spares for the tanks that had already been produced. With operational tanks finally out on the battlefield, they were now given a chance to prove their worth. Instead of providing positive results, the first group of tanks that saw the battlefield served as examples of what not to do during the design process, as well as providing ideas on how to improve their effectiveness. Tank operators were faced with numerous faults in their designs that were not faced in the short testing period some months before. Numerous parts of the tanks could not hold up to the performance that was expected of them. Most often, the problems came from the engines malfunctioning. They were called upon to run under heavy loads at high revolutions for long periods of time and over rough terrain. During November 1916, the average horsepower output was around 105 horsepower. By 1918, just two years later, the engines had improved to 300 horsepower, so they pretty much tripled, thus enabling them to run more efficiently. Unfortunately, none of the more powerful tanks had the chance to see battle. Other internal issues developed from dust and mud hindering performance of the tanks as well as it being forced to run off of inferior fuel and oil. One major external problem tanks had to tackle was that of either driving into and out of trenches or just bridging them entirely. Churchill had requested that tanks be able to nullify the advantage trenches gave the enemy. In most cases, tanks would either get stuck in the mud and begin sinking from weighing about two tons, or they would get stuck in the trenches and not be able to pull themselves out. Another issue that faced the tanks was a lack of skilled labor, specifically mechanical engineers, both in the field and in munition productions at home. Yet another problem with tanks was that decisive advancements related to tanks came too slowly and disproportionately. Tank warfare developed too quickly for mental digestion, and it came about much faster than other revolutionary weapons. Once field tacticians had finally began to get a feel for tanks and the advantages they brought to war, the tanks began to gain a big boost in effectiveness. Major J.F.C. Fuller was a skeptical military mind as well as a brilliant analyst. He was the first genius the tanks acquired, but in advocating their case with untiring asperity, he made many enemies. Widely documented as the first major chance for tanks to prove their mettle was during a battle fought in 1917 called the Battle of Cambrai. Cambrai. In 1917, the Battle of Cambrai, what had begun as part of a raiding party under the command of Fuller, transformed into a sneak attack on a German stronghold southwest of Cambrai at the request of General Julian Bing. At the strongest part of the Hindenburg Line, the battlefield near Cambrai, consisted of long spurs of waterways and fortifications using every ounce of German ingenuity. Three lines of 12-foot wide trenches and machine gun nests were some of the few defensive measures taken by the Germans at this particular part of the line. The initial plan was for the 476 available tanks to focus their attack on German strong points and for infantry, artillery, and aircraft to provide support. At the end of the first day of battle, parts of the Hindenburg line had been penetrated by up to 8 kilometers in some areas. A later battle involving tanks resembled the method used during the battle at Cambrai, but it was launched in a different manner. Instead of infantry fighting on its own and leaving tanks to themselves, this battle, which took place east of the Amens, Amens, featured foot soldiers being required to cooperate with the armor that was available. Unlike the success enjoyed during the Battle of Cambrai, the German resistance was able to destroy many of the tanks that opposed them during this battle. 
At one spot, 9 out of 10 tanks were knocked out by one German battery, and at another, 7 were wrecked. Unfortunately for the Germans, though, a few tanks and armored cars managed to break through the lines and caused havoc in their rear. The tank spent most of the war trying to find its niche in battle. Unfortunately for tanks, and probably only tanks, the Great War ended before they had a chance to contribute more to the war effort. I guess that's a good thing in a way, but... Poor tanks didn't get their chance to really shine. Common sentiment among many people was that there was no time for a device which should never be needed. But World War I provided a stage that allowed tank engineers, designers, and operators to work through some of the growing pains of this new technology. Working through the multiple problems that plagued the tank in earlier stages of development was both enhanced and hampered because of different aspects of the war. By the time the next war rolled around, some three decades later, tanks were able to rise to the occasion, take the reins of war to their own hands, or treads, <laughs> thus issuing a new stage of warfare that mostly resembles modern warfare. An apt summary of what was soon to be the future of warfare was once written by Captain G. Leo Martel in November 1916. In this paper, he included a somewhat prophetic announcement that the future great wars were sure to start between the tank armies of their respective sides. In addition to that, he stated that the whole object of war would evolve into focusing on the destruction of enemy tanks. This proclamation is just one of many examples given during the Great War of how tanks had evolved from an object of ridicule and disgust in the beginning into an up-and-coming mainstay in the fields of war. So that's just a little bit about tanks and how they came about, especially during the World War One, as most Americans call it. It's really cool to see how they became more than just armored cars. Looking back on the, the chariots, where they took their inspiration from, the side motor cars that you that you think of, and like Saving Private Ryan. Well, that's World War Two, but still, in, in my mind, there's little cars like that. But tanks in World War One, don't look like tanks from World War Two, going all the way up to Desert Storm. Thankfully now, I don't guess we really use tanks. I mean, I'm sure we do, but it's not, it's more of like psychological and information warfare instead of lining up our guys and shooting people down like, like you would think in the Civil War. It's more tactical and smaller, like urban fighting, whatever, so... In my mind, at least, you don't really use tanks, but that's coming from non-military involved, haven't really looked into is the Iraq war. Is that still going on, or is that a ceasefire? I don't know. But anyways, so this has been Mark with Low Mark's podcast. Just glad to bring you a little bit of information about tanks. Let's see what we get into next time. Thanks for listening.